Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 3rd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsen, attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Assembly Bill 5 was not preempted by federal laws governing the trucking industry, and it reversed a lower court ruling as it ordered freight carriers in California to begin complying with the California Employment Law. Prior to 2018, the California Supreme Court's framework for classifying workers as either employees or independent contractors was set forth in its 1989 Borello decision. Almost 30 years after Borello, the California Supreme Court revisited the framework for classifying workers as employees or independent contractors in its 2018 Dynamax decision, which adopted a new standard commonly referred to as the ABC test. Then in September 2019, the California legislature passed AB 5, which codified the ABC test and expanded its applicability. This triggered a trade association representing motor carriers that hire independent contractors who own their own trucks, the California Trucking Association, to spearhead a federal lawsuit seeking to enjoin enforcement of AB 5. The association viewed the new rule statutorily classifying a worker as an employee as effectively precluding the business model employed by CTA's members. The theory of the case was that the federal law, known as the Federal Aviation Administration Authorization Act of 1994, or the F4A, preempted the ABC test as applied to motor carriers. The federal district court held that CTA was likely to succeed on the merits of their theory, and it therefore enjoined the state from enforcing AB5 against any motor carrier doing business in California. But the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the decision in the published case of California Trucking Association v. Bonita. The Supremacy Clause of the United States Constitution provides that federal law shall be the supreme law of the land. The Ninth Circuit concluded that the F4A does not preempt the test for classifying California workers as either employees or independent contractors. AB5 is not significantly related to rates, routes, or services, which is a substance of the Federal Aviation Act provisions. And now our crime report. 41-year-old Liana Carpetayan, who lives in Dorado Hills, pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud and one count of conspiracy to pay and receive health care kickbacks. Karaptayan and another individual owned and controlled home health care and hospice agencies in the greater Sacramento area, ANG Healthcare Incorporated, Excel Home Healthcare Incorporated, and Excel Hospice Incorporated. Karaptayan paid and directed others to pay kickbacks to multiple individuals for referrals, including employees of healthcare facilities as well as employees' spouses. 
The kickback recipients included John Eby, a registered nurse who worked for a hospital in Sacramento, Anita VJ, the director of social services at a skilled nursing and assisted living facility in Sacramento, Jai VJ, Anita's husband, and Mariella Pagadnabian, the director of social services at a skilled nursing care facility in Roseville, California. In total, Karapetian caused the agencies to submit over 8,000 claims to Medicare for the cost of home, health care, and hospice services. Based on those claims, Medicare paid the agencies about $31 million. Of that amount, Medicare paid the agencies at least over $2 million for services purportedly provided to beneficiaries referred in exchange for kickbacks. Karaptayan will be sentenced on August 26th. She faces maximum statutory penalties of 10 years in prison for the health care fraud conspiracy charge and five years in prison for the kickback conspiracy charge. She also faces a maximum fine of $250,000 or twice the gross gain or loss from each charge. In separate cases, Ebi, JVJ, Anita VJ and Panagbayan pleaded guilty for their roles in the kickback scheme. They all await sentencing. And in regulatory news, the DWC has posted proposed amendments to the QME regulations for comment. The DWC has posted the proposed amendments to qualified medical evaluations to its online forum where members of the public may review and comment on the proposals. The proposed changes are necessary to bring existing regulations into compliance with amendments to the Labor Code and to clarify the Administrative Director's authority with respect to the processes related to appointment and reappointment of qualified medical evaluators. The draft regulations include provisions to conform amended regulations with proper gender pronouns, provisions for electronic service of medical legal reports, and the use of electronic signatures in the QME program, a revision of the number of hours necessary for initial qualification of physicians as QMEs, revision of continuing education requirements including hourly requirements, and the addition of anti-bias training for QMEs. Also, provisions that require a QME to comply with all Administrative Director's regulations in order to be reappointed as a QME. In addition, clarification for the use of probation as a disciplinary sanction and allowing the Administrative Director to designate hearing officers for adjudication of disputes regarding appointment and reappointment applications. There are also provisions allowing QME reappointment hearings to be heard by other tribunals in addition to the Office of Administrative Hearings. The forum can be found on the DWC Forum's webpage under Current Forums. The DIR and its Division of Workers' Compensation has posted an annual report on the department's independent medical review program. 
IMR is the medical dispute resolution process for the state's workers' compensation system that resolves disputes about the medical treatment of injured workers. The report describes IMR program activity in 2020, the eighth year since the program was implemented. The Independent Medical Review Organization administering the program, Maximus Federal Services, received more than 184,100 IMR applications that year and issued nearly 137,000 final determination letters, each addressing one or more medical necessity disputes. In the first half of 2020, IMR program activity slowed with the emergence of the pandemic, but rebounded in the second half. Throughout the year, Maximus issued decisions on average 8 to 12 days after receipt of all medical records. Nearly 94% of all unique IMR filings were deemed eligible for review, the highest annual percentage since IMR began. Pharmaceutical requests accounted for 34% of all treatment requests sent for IMR, and this was a smaller proportion of total service requests than in previous years. Opioids comprised about 3 out of 10 pharmaceutical requests. Treatment request denials were overturned at the rate of 9.5%. Specialist consultants' office visits and mental health services were overturned most often. Guidelines contained in the Medical Treatment Utilization Schedule continue to serve as the primary resource for the determination of medical necessity. The progress record in full is posted on the DIR website. The DWC has posted the new medical legal fee schedule on its website, which became effective on April 1, 2021. The documents include the final text of amendments to the medical legal fee schedule regulations, as well as forum comments and the DWC response to those comments and action to the comments. Some of the changes include clarification of the physician's obligation when records are received without an attestation, clarification on billings for records previously reviewed under MedLegal 202, deletion of the billing code MedLegal 206 related to the unreimbursed supplemental report, addition of the ability of physicians who are certified as qualified medical evaluators in the specialty of internal medicine or who are board certified in internal medicine to use modifiers 97 and 98 for toxicology and oncology evaluations. The industry in general reacted with some consternation about the new medical legal fee schedule and had some questions about implementation of the rules. Apparently, in response, the DWC has posted the recording of the question and answer meetings held by Zoom on April 13 and also on April 20 regarding the new medical legal fee schedule for the workers' compensation system. The links to the recorded sessions, which answered questions from stakeholders regarding the implementation of the fee schedule, can be found on the DWC website. The medical legal fee schedule set forth at California Code of Regulations, Title VIII, 
sections 97, 93 through 97, 95. The Department of Industrial Relations and its California Labor Commissioner's Office has launched a web-based tool in English and Spanish that offers key information on the new 2021 COVID-19 Supplemental Paid Sick Leave Law, which went into effect on March 19. The 2021 Supplemental Paid Sick Leave Law provides workers up to 80 hours of paid sick leave if they or a family member are unable to work or telework due to COVID-19, including for vaccine-related reasons. The new law, which went into effect on March 29 and is retroactive to July 1, 2021, requires that California workers are provided up to two weeks of supplemental paid sick leave if they are affected by COVID-19. Leave time now also applies to attending a COVID-19 vaccine appointment and recovering from symptoms related to the vaccine. The new law is in effect until September 30, 2021. Small businesses employing 25 or fewer workers are exempt from the law, but may offer supplemental paid sick leave and receive a federal tax credit if eligible. The online Navigator tool helps workers and employers confirm if they are eligible for COVID-19 supplemental paid sick leave by answering short, simple questions on the impact of COVID-19 is having on an employee's ability to work. Workers and employers need not provide a name or other personal details to determine eligibility. In addition, supplemental paid sick leave FAQs are posted online. In the FAQs, workers can find information on required circumstances for taking COVID-19 leave, how to request paid sick leave from an employer, where to file a claim if they were not paid for leave, and what rights they have as a covered employee. Employers can find information on when must employers pay COVID-19 sick leave, calculating leave time for full-time and part-time employees, requirements for informing employees about the new law, and how to calculate and list paid leave on pay stubs. The law also includes unique provisions for firefighters. And in medical news, a Reuters analysis shows that new cases of COVID-19 in the United States fell 16% last week to about 409,000 cases, the biggest percentage drop in weekly new cases since February. Deaths from COVID-19 fell 4% to slightly less than 5,000 in the week ending April 25 and dropping below the 5,000 mark for the first time since last October. Michigan still led the states in new cases per capita, though new infections fell 29% last week compared to the previous seven days. New cases also fell by over 20% in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, the states with the next highest rates of infected infection based on population. New infections are still rising on a weekly basis in 12 out of 50 states down from 30 states last month. The states with the biggest percentage increases are Tennessee, Oregon, and Arizona. 
As of Sunday, 43% of the U.S. population has received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, and 20% was fully vaccinated. Nationally, the pace of vaccinations fell 14% from the previous week to an average of 2.7 million shots per day. The average number of COVID-19 patients in hospitals across the country held steady at about 41,000. The FDA has cleared two Brain Lab AG surgical robots, one the LoopX mobile imaging robot and the other the CIRC robotic alignment module, a robotic surgical system for spine procedures. Claiming it's the first fully robotic intraoperative imaging device on the market, the company said the Loop X's independently moving imaging source and detector panels enable flexible patient positioning and non-isocentric imaging, which reduces the amount of radiation exposure and increases the variety of indications which can be treated. The mobile imaging robot can be controlled wirelessly with a touchscreen tablet. The CIRC robotic alignment module is intended to be an intraoperative image-guided localization system to support the surgeon to achieve pre-planned trajectories with surgical instruments. Use of the CIRC module for spinal use is for the treatment of diseases where the placement of spinal screws is indicated. The company says the module is capable of fine-tuning the alignment to a pre-planned trajectory and freeing up the surgeon's hands, enabling them to focus on the patient's anatomy. The module has already been used by surgeons at Royal London Hospital for cases ranging from lumbar fusions to complex deformity and cervical fractures. After finishing the alignment, the device remains in in this position and the surgeon can use surgical instruments through the provided guide to perform the surgical steps intended without losing the trajectory. The company Brain Lab was founded in 1989 and employs more than 1,500 people in 20 offices and is present in over 5,600 hospitals in 116 countries. Precision Medicine aims to create specialized treatment regimens that are tailored to each individual's unique genetics, environment, and lifestyle. In his 2015 State of the Union address, President Obama announced that he was launching the Precision Medical Initiative, a bold new research effort to revolutionize how we improve health and treat disease. Most medical treatments have been designed for the average patient. As a result of this one-size-fits-all approach, treatments can be very successful for some patients, but not at all for others. On the other hand, precision medicine is an innovative approach that takes into account individual differences in people's genes, environments, and lifestyles. It gives medical professionals the resources they need to target the specific treatments of illnesses they encounter. Today, there are numerous clinical applications of precision medicine that are expected to continue to shape how medicine and research are conducted for years to come. 
precision medicine has particularly been particularly successful in targeting various aspects of DNA in the treatment of various diseases, particularly cancers. Patients with breast, lung, and colorectal cancers, as well as melanomas and leukemias, routinely undergo molecular testing. As part of patient care, enabling physicians to select treatments that improve chances of survival and reduce exposure to adverse effects. Precision methods are relatively unexplored in trauma patients, but new research is being looked at for precision methods to treat patients with large extremity wounds, non-unions, and fractures associated with polytrauma. Precision-based clinical decision tools are being validated to optimize timing for open wound definitive closure. Early patient-specific biomarkers to stratify non-union risk within one week of fracture are being explored. Patient-specific data to stage timing of major fracture interventions in multiply injured patients are being interrogated. The MyMatrix Chief Financial Officer, Phil Walls, was joined by Marcos Iglesias, M.D., the Chief Medical Director of the Travelers and Constitution State Services, to discuss the interaction between behavioral health and chronic pain management in workers' compensation. The presentation, Navigating the Intersection of Pain Management and Psychotropic Drugs, was held as part of the National Workers' Compensation and Disability Conference's ongoing digital session series. During the panel, the two experts examined the types of psychotropic drugs that claims professionals most commonly encounter, including those used off-label, and effective strategies for managing safety and cost considerations. Mental health is a growing concern that requires more attention since only 40% of the 39 million adults in the United States who experience a mental health event actually receive any treatment. In workers' compensation, where so many injured workers deal with chronic pain, treated and untreated mental health conditions are associated with high claim costs over long periods of time. According to the panelists, certain drug combinations, such as opioids and benzodiazepines, require particular attention from both a patient safety and cost standpoint. Another key topic in the presentation was off-label drug use. According to research, 73% of medications prescribed for an off-label use, such as using a drug, for longer than indicated or to treat a different condition had poor or no scientific support. You can view the presentation in full and download slides on the National Workers' Compensation and Disability Conference website. So that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special report using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. 
And we also publish our daily news podcasts and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarin Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.